1: So today I'm here with Susan Gibson of Gibson Family Law, and Susan is an energetic and dynamic family law attorney who focuses on getting your case done. She has almost 15 years of exclusively practicing family law in in the five county area of Philadelphia, but currently focuses her practice in Bucks County and Montgomery counties. When she's not practicing law, she spends her time with a very energetic household of four boys, ranging in age from 16 to two years old. And that in itself is a challenge. (laughs) So on your website, you say you offer guidance where the law and people intersect. And I know that you focus on solutions and the best way to get it done. Tell us more about that.
2: What I hope to bring to clients when I'm helping them through a divorce or custody or support arrangement is to guide them and educate them through the legal process where they can find solutions that fit for them in their lives. Um, And so that's sort of why I came to family law in general is because I, I like working with individuals. I like working, um, with people because I like knowing their stories. I like knowing where they came from. I like knowing where they want to go. I like knowing what their goals are. Um, especially if they come to me at the beginning of a divorce, they're facing a huge life change and, um, they have to plan for their life moving forward. And in order to plan for their life moving forward, I have to know what their goals are. And maybe some of those goals I can achieve for them, maybe not. But that's sort of what I mean when I say I like helping people or meeting people where the law intersects in their lives, because that's exactly what's happening when someone is facing a life change like divorce or or having to think about living in separate homes from their children's other parents and and those sorts of situations.
1: Yeah. Those are such huge challenges. Um, Especially when children are involved and, uh, life issues and going forward and what decisions you make. So how did you come to the law per se?
2: So my legal profession is an inherited one. (laughs) So my grandfather was an attorney, several of my mom's brothers, she's one of nine, several of my mom's brothers went to law school. Um, And so early on, I think it was just sort of realized that I, I had sort of that personality, the strong personality that's required of someone who's going to be practicing law to do all the things that lawyers do. And it was sort of subtly encouraged throughout my life to pursue that path, Um, in no small part, because my grandfather and I had a really close bond, despite the fact that I grew up all over the Midwest and East Coast, and he was in Long Island, and I only saw him a handful of times, and he had 30 grandchildren by the time he passed away. There was something special about my relationship with him. So wanting to kind of follow him in his footsteps. And even though he was general counsel for a large insurance company, he also ran a small private practice handling adoptions throughout the, I guess, 50s, 60s, and 70s um, in New York. Actually, all the way up through the 90s, he handled uh, adoption for about 40 years. Um, So he also really helped individuals find new beginnings in their lives. And that was always inspirational for me.
1: Oh how interesting! Um, I don't, I don't know a lot about the law and adoptions, but it sounds fascinating. So that actually brought you to family law versus some other type of law.
2: Yeah, I really wanted to help individuals. Like I did not feel like I wanted to be working. With corporations trying to do litigation. I didn't want to do transactional work where I wasn't in a courtroom. I really like being in in the courtroom when there's a reason to be there. I like the energy of courtrooms, I like the energy of litigation. Um, But I wanted to really be using my legal knowledge to help people and help individuals.
1: So you spoke some about the challenges, but what are the challenges of practicing family law today? or the the what uh, the largest challenges for you in family in uh family law today
2: um i think the biggest challenges are helping my clients stay focused on solutions because they're in such turmoil understandably so you know for most people even if they're the ones choosing the path of divorce, it was not the path they wanted in their lives. And so they're grappling with a lot emotionally. And when they're struggling with all of those emotional challenges, it can it can be hard and it can be easy to get sidetracked and focus on the things that matter to them. And they're important things. They're not things to be disregarded, but they're often not the things that are going to be resolved by the court process. And so I try to be a bit of a sounding board on some of those emotional pieces um, and give my clients that space to talk about what's going on for themselves, but also to try to keep them focused on the solutions that the court can handle and will handle for them. Um, so that they really come out of it feeling like they had a part in the in the process as opposed to feeling like the process overwhelmed them or took over their lives and they're better or they're worse off because of it. Um, they just try to do the best they can to really focus on those things for clients. and that is, a challenge sometimes because some people just, they aren't there yet, understandably so. And they they have a hard time and they are heavily focused on on the emotional side of what they're going through, which is completely understandable. And for those clients, I just let them be, I let them do what they need to do. Um, and I just kind of try to be that, again, that sounding board so that they can feel heard so that they can move past what they're going through. Yeah, it, it,
1: definitely a challenge. And what we've all heard of the situations where people spend years and years and years trying to finalize a divorce. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's always difficult because they they had something at the beginning mm-hmm. that has now fallen apart in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, how effective are prenups?
2: Oh, very effective. I mean, in Pennsylvania, they're very hard to overturn. Um, because they just require such a high level of, or there's such a high standard for accepting them as enforceable. That being said, they can sometimes not be well-drafted. And so in that case, you know, I still have had some challenges in divorce cases where there is a prenup in place and it's not entirely clear what was intended by the contract, but as a first blush, prenups are enforceable. They're very effective at determining who's going to receive what property, And it does limit some of the negotiations and uh, some of the litigation that has to go into the divorce. I will say, though, most prenups that I've litigated, there's still going to be some unanticipated issue or some term that's in the agreement that mm, there might be some room to argue about what was the true intent at the time the prenup was negotiated. So effective in the sense that they will be enforced. Absolutely. I mean, it's very hard to get one turned over completely Um, effective in the sense of creating a situation where you just have to, like, walk up to the court and say, here's our prenup and we're done. And that's not going to happen either. There's still going to be some level of work that has to be done in terms of identifying assets, tracing assets, all those things, too. So
1: It must be so difficult because there's a a distance in time between when the prenup is written.
2: yes. And sometimes people don't follow what they intend on their prenup. So they'll say they want to keep things separate, but then they might put some property in joint names when they didn't ever intend to. And so then we have to kind of analyze, what does that mean? And we have to look at that in terms of what does the contract say? So we're always going back to what does the contract of the prenup say, and does it provide for that distribution of property or not?
1: Wow. And, um, I saw on your website that you also deal with, um, cohabitation issues.
2: Yes. So the biggest issue with cohabitation is real estate. So parties who are living together in a home they own together, but they're not married. Um, And when and if that relationship ends, they have to decide how to divide that asset. Um, And they have to decide whether one party can buy the other party out, or if one party can't, then are they going to sell the property? And how are they going to divide the proceeds? Um, so before moving in with someone, you can have those discussions before moving in with someone so that it's sort of done with a clear head and everybody goes in with that clear expectation. Um, people buy property and then they renovate and they're using all of their separate income because they're not married to do renovations or remodeling. And so the question is, who's going to benefit from those improvements? Who's going to get the benefit of that increase in value from the improvement somebody did? And to what extent? Is that improvement actually increase the value of the property? Um, you know, there's home maintenance that can cost quite a bit, but it doesn't necessarily do anything to her the value. So, what happens when you have to repair the roof or you have to repair the, you know, HVAC? That's not necessarily an improvement, but somebody has to pay for those those things. So, when people want to own property together, getting that type of agreement in place. Um, really can help people understand who is contributing to the mortgage and in what percentage who's going to pay for the roof when it needs to be repaired. And if we separate, what are we going to do with it? Um, Most of the time in those situations, these parties are not necessarily holding joint accounts with tons of money in them. But to the extent they decide to do that as well, then it can deal with joint accounts, joint investments, Joint businesses, anything that they want to hold jointly because they're in a romantic relationship, but they're choosing not to get married can be addressed by a cohabitation agreement.
1: Wow, I never thought about that. Um, and then in terms of child custody, that becomes a major issue. And also, I know there are, there are major things in terms of sometimes pet custody. <laughs> How do you deal with those?
2: So pets in Pennsylvania, there is no custody. They're considered property. And because unless you're talking about some very expensive show horse or show dog, that property is probably only worth an hour of your attorney's time. So most of the time it just has to fall out the way it falls out and the attorneys don't deal with it too much. We might sometimes go back and forth in some letters between counsel. um, But ultimately parties just have to kind of come to an agreement on who's going to get the pet um, and who's going to be responsible because the other side of it that I've heard is well I have the pet now I have all these expenses don't I get money to continue the expenses of this pet we bought together and the answer is no
1: (laughs) unfortunately
2: Um, so that's one of those that's a little bit like there is some case law about what we do with pets but for the most part it just has to be kind of resolved um, as amicably as possible I guess Um, but child custody is certainly an issue. I mean, and that's an issue for parties that are married or not married. It does not matter. Um, if you have a child with somebody and you've raised a child with somebody, then you have the right to have custody time with that child. Um, and the biggest thing the court has to figure out is what schedule makes the most sense given the facts of the case involved. And so it's a huge area of discretion. Um, and that can be quite a challenge for a practitioner because, we can't make huge statements of predictions because it is such a highly discretionary area and we can give sort of general guidance on what the court generally does or doesn't do, but it's really hard to give very specific guidance because it, it's just so much in the discretion of whatever judge you happen to be in front of at that time. Uh, but with that being said, I mean, the, the state of Pennsylvania, or at least in the counties I'm in, Bucks and Montgomery, are starting to move more toward what's known as equal 50-50 custody of the of the children. And by that, I'm talking about physical custody and where are the children sleeping. And the court is slowly moving toward a, a fair number of cases where parties are sharing that time equally. And so that means out of a 14-day rotation, the children or child are they're living with each parent seven of those days whether it's week on, week off, or a different combination of a handful of days here and a handful of days there, nights, weekends, whatever it might be. It's always based on that overnight time. Um, So a fair number of people residing in Bucks and Montgomery County have those sort of 50-50 custody schedules. Um, And the ones that don't, it's because the court didn't feel like it was appropriate or one of the parents didn't ask for it, and the parent didn't want it to be that equal, and they wanted, they were okay with a more traditional like primary parent situation with some every other weekend custody time, some dinner visits during the week, and that's sometimes because both parties agree that that's the best arrangement for the children, or the court decided that was the best arrangement for the children. And of course, with people
1: moving around so much, it must be very, very difficult.
2: Yes. Um, So, the court has to address relocation cases, obviously. and that's another one where I've seen just so much discretion. Um, there's guidelines in the case law, there's guidelines in the statute, there's requirements of notice now that used to not be there. So if one party is moving in a in a way that could interfere with the custodial rights of the non-moving party, they have to notify the other party and, and give that party the opportunity to have everything sort of figured out before the move even happens. Um, But again, it's just a general standard of what does it mean to interfere with custody rights. And I often use the example of if someone's moving from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh, we can pretty much agree that is definitely a relocation. Um, But if somebody is moving uh, from 123 Main Street to 125 Main Street, we can also agree that that's not a relocation. That's not going to impact custody at all. And then you've got all the gray in-betweens. Um, if children are attending private school, it may matter less where the parents reside. If they're in a 50-50 custody situation and the exchanges are happening at a private school and each of the parents lives within an hour of the private school, but they might live two, two and a half hours from each other, it may not matter much, um, those relocations, because the, there's a central school where this exchanges are occurring. You have a child in a public school and one party wants to move, then the court may take that into consideration when deciding whether a shared custody arrangement makes sense any longer or if it makes more sense to have one parent be the primary parent in in a location that maintains the bonds with the school and all of the things that go into what goes on in a child's life. Um, And the further the relocation, the court oftentimes does really long periods of custody for the non-custodial parent outside of the state over the summer and over winter break, and other breaks from school to sort of kind of make up for it and give that that parent a time. But it is also very fact-specific. It's very case-specific. It's depending on the age of the kids, any special needs of the kids. So that's where obviously it's important to, to talk to an attorney, because you kind of have to flesh out, like, how are those facts going to play out in front of the court? Is there something in this case that's going to sway the court to go one way or the other? Is there something that's going to be more important for the court or less important for the court, depending on Again, the facts of the case.
1: Sure. And what then, how long in terms of years does that last? Uh, How old are the children when they're no longer part of that custodial agreement?
2: When they turn 18. So custody ends at 18 because the children at that point are legal adults. Um, So custody orders no longer dictate where the children reside. Um, Some children turn 18 before they start their senior year of high school, and so their senior year of high school, they technically don't have to live with either parent. Um, They can get their own apartment if they wanted to and still attend high school they're 18. Um, If that's the case in a custody situation, then that would obviously impact support. If that child has self-emancipated and lives on their own, there may not be a support payment any longer, but there would certainly be not custody. Um, Support in Pennsylvania goes until the children turn 18 or graduate from high school, whichever happens. Less. So there's obviously some kids that graduate high school at 17 and they turn 18 later. And for those kids who are there in between, they're either already 18 or they're not yet 18, but they've graduated, then it becomes whether or not that child is um, self-sufficient. So 18, graduation from high school, or if the child has, for some reason, you know, already moved on to doing their own things and they're
1: self-sufficient in some way. Wow. So we talked about prenups and we talked about child custody. How about postnups? So what post- are they?
2: <laughs> postnups are interesting. Postnups is any settlement agreement entered by parties when they're still married before they're divorced. So pretty much every settlement agreement in Pennsylvania is technically a postnup. But what most people are thinking of when they're talking about postnups would be agreements as it relates to property when we're not getting a divorce, but we now want to deal with it in the same way that we have a prenup. What triggers that? Like, why didn't we just do the prenup then is sort of the question that people ask. Often what will trigger a post-nup will be some sort of anticipated or actual major change in a party circumstance that may not have existed at the time of marriage. So, um, or exi- it existed, but people for whatever reason didn't consider it. So family business. Um, we all know that the intent was for husband or wife to step into ownership of the family business, but for whatever reason, we didn't really address this at the prenup Now mom or dad is anticipating retiring from the family business. And all of a sudden we go, oh, wait a minute. We want to give part of the family business to Johnny or Susie. And now we're realizing that if we do that, the spouse of Johnny or Susie may now be entitled to some of this family business. Oh, we really probably should have done this as a prenup, but now we can do it as a post-nup instead. Um, The reason they don't often happen is what's the incentive of the spouse. When it's a prenup, it's the incentive is, finalizing the actual marriage and being married and understanding and um the alternative in a post is if we don't sign this then we don't get the family business and or if we don't sign this then maybe we just realize we're on different pages financially and we're gonna find ourselves divorced i don't know um so it, it becomes a bit tricky and i have had to do a, a post-nuptial agreement under certain under similar circumstances so um it just you more often see it as a prenuptial agreement than a postnup, but they're just pretty much the same thing. All of the things that
1: many of us don't think about until we have to, and right. then it's not actually optimal timing.
2: Exactly, and and you don't always think about it, and then it comes up and. For me, it's just so second nature at this point to think about all of these things, obviously. And then other times it's, um, you know, I learn every day how it's not second nature (laughs) to, you know, people that I meet and I'm like, oh, well, of course it would do X, Y, Z. And and it's not as uh, obvious, you know, to people who don't practice what I practice and do what I do. So.
1: Uh, Yeah, for sure. There are so many situations and most of the time we think we're protecting ourselves, but we don't know. And then I'm sure that the entertainment industry doesn't help the situation because people assume, (laughs) oh, well, this of course is true, when it may be total fiction, and then you have to sort that out as well.
2: Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, a lot of what I cover in my initial consultations are all the comments of, but I thought this, and I thought that, and based on either social media or a conversation with a friend or how something might be portrayed on um, a fiction show of some sort. Um, yeah, there's a lot of myths and beliefs that certain things are going to happen in certain ways based on any number of things. So, and then you were talking
1: about prenups and postnups, but what happens when people move from one state into Pennsylvania and they've had all this legal documentation? created out of state, does that become an issue within within Pennsylvania if there's a change in the
2: situation? If there's a prenup that exists, it would depend on the terms of the prenup. So a term that's in the prenups I do in Pennsylvania is always a statement that the law is going to be controlled or the prenup is going to be controlled by the laws of Pennsylvania because otherwise there is that question, what happens if I move? So um, an interesting... Um sort of case that can come up sometimes is, you know, we had a, I had a case at an old law firm I was at where the issue was they used that phrase that it was going to be controlled by the laws of Pennsylvania. The family was very wealthy, they had property in multiple states, and they were facing a divorce, and there was a change in the law. And it didn't say the law of Pennsylvania in effect at the time of the prenup, it just said the laws of Pennsylvania. So the question became, are we applying the laws that existed when the prenup was signed, or are we applying the law as of the date of the divorce, even though these parties were not living in Pennsylvania at the time? So that's how the the law would have to go. And so then there was um, case law that came out about that, and it was, I mean, it was like a $10 or $15 million issue um, because of some change of the law that occurred, um, and uh, you know, I wasn't involved in the case directly myself, so I, I don't remember all the subtle nuances, ins and outs, but the end result was it became very important, and something I always remember is that you need to state the laws of the state as of what date, and then that's the law that's going to control your prenuptial agreement.
1: Wow, how interesting. Uh, yeah, I was involved in a situation where uh, some property went to My grandfather had property that went to my mother, but my mother passed away before um, she passed away before finalizing her acceptance of the property. And the property then would go to me as the next heir. And it became an issue. I had to prove to the court that the intent was that I was to get it. And yes. those are things that people just don't think about. And it was assumed that my mother, of course, would survive my grandfather. Right. Uh, but it didn't make it. It didn't have uh, the clause that if she was incapacitated in some way. Got it. Uh, yeah. So it becomes a really interesting, nuanced situation.
2: Always. Yep. Yeah. And so that's sort of always a thing when people say to me, like, do I need to have a lawyer to get divorced? It's like, well, no, you don't. But are you going to think about all of those nuances when you fill out the paperwork yourself? And are you going to just create you know, some gaps that you maybe didn't intend to create because you didn't have an attorney looking at the documents and, and thinking about the things that you wouldn't be expected to think about? Um you know, I, I wouldn't perform heart surgery on myself or a family member. I've never been to medical school.
1: <laughs> so, you know,
2: you know, that's a bit different because you obviously need to have a doctor do that. So do you need to have a lawyer? No, uh, I guess you don't necessarily need one, uh, but you would be better served to have one, in my opinion, in most cases. So, Um, because we do see those things and we do, we remember the cases that come to us because somebody drafted their own settlement agreement and something was unclear and now we're enforcing the settlement agreement and nobody really knows what happened because no lawyer was involved in finalizing the divorce. Um, you know, every lawyer I know has had that case.
1: Yes, those are such huge challenges and sometimes saving is not really saving in the end. Exactly right.
2: Oh, it gets
1: so complicated. Yes. So totally complicated. So tell us where people can find you.
2: So I have uh, my website at gibsonfamilylaw.com, and I am not as active on social media, so I'm there. Uh, I don't even think I know my own social media handles necessarily, but I'm there. Uh, I hope to be developing some more additional content to reach people that way in the next year. That would be my next step. Um, but I'm at my website and my office uh, phone number. So um, that's where I can be reached. Well, that's wonderful.
1: So one of the other questions that I like to ask is, um, what would, what is one of the most impactful or one of one piece of advice that you've received Uh, that has contributed to your success over the years?
2: Push yourself. Go outside your comfort zone. Um, When I first started my own practice, networking was not a thing I really did. Um, I was pretty comfortable in the firms I was at just kind of like riding the tailcoats of whatever cases happened to be assigned to me that came my way without having to do much work of generating my own clients or my own business. And as soon as I started my own practice, obviously, that's no longer a thing to go by. I had to be out there. I had to be networking. And it was a very uncomfortable first step for me to take. And then through that, though, I've met some great supporters, great friends. Um, And it's just been because of going outside that comfort zone that I've done that. And that led to me, obviously, meeting you (laughs) and going even further outside my comfort zone and doing this podcast, um, which I was happy for the opportunity to be out there and, that in, in either case, it never would have happened if I didn't take a minute to say, you know, you've got to be out there. you got to get outside your comfort zone. People want to see who you are. They're not, you know, they, they want to give you business if they know who you are and they don't know who you are if you're not willing to get out there and get outside that comfort zone and introduce yourself to people. So, so
1: true. And, um, you have, do you have connections with attorneys in other states so that if people are interested, you can do some
2: referrals. I do, I, for a run there, I had a bunch of Atlanta cases for some reason, which is just coincidental because I happen to be from Atlanta. <laughs> none of the the referrals that I had coming out of Atlanta had anything to do with my prior connections. They were just random coincidences. So I have a couple of relationships with some attorneys in Georgia, surprisingly, uh, and some relationships with attorneys in New Jersey. And then from there I'm in the American bar association as well. And the family law section of the American bar association. So if any of my cases do cross state lines for any reason, I always have easy resources at, at my fingertips. I had a case, um, Recently, where there was a jurisdictional issue between here and Virginia, so I have some connections in Virginia with some Virginia family law attorneys, Um, and my alma mater is in uh, DC. So, any a lot of my classmates are still in DC, Maryland, and Virginia. So, if I ever have a need to refer cases out to that area of the world, I can probably find at least one attorney in that area of the world who does what somebody needs them to do. So.
1: Well, excellent. It's been wonderful speaking with you today. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast.
2: Thank you. I appreciate you asking me and encouraging me to do it.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Please follow us, submit a rating and review, and share us with your friends. This helps our message reach more listeners. For more information about my products, Visit JustWantedToAsk.com. Thank you.